Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 154 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, Ian Hunter, I want to remind you about some of the new things you can find in the online shop at mistresscarrie.com including Mistress Carrie guitar picks and the all-new Slate Cocktails in the War Room coasters. It's a set of four that are veteran-made. You can check out all that and more. Just go to MistressCarrie.com and click shop. My guest this week, Ian Hunter, really doesn't need an introduction. The 83-year-old is a member of rock and roll royalty. He's a multi-instrumentalist, famed for his solo work, and for being a member of Matha Hoople. Well, Ian Hunter recently released his solo album, Defiance Part 1, that features everyone from Ringo to Billy Gibbons to Jeff Beck to Taylor Hawkins to Slash to Dean DeLeo to Joe Elliott, Johnny Depp, and so many more. I could not wait to talk to Ian Hunter about making this album in the middle of COVID. Plus, we talked about his upbringing, his illustrious music career, his inspiration, his songwriting style. I may have asked him for some marriage advice. And well, we may have even talked about the cat. Ian Hunter is saying a lot with Defiance Part 1. And yes, there is a Defiance Part 2. It was such an honor and a privilege to have him on the show, and I'm so excited for you to hear the interview. So, allow me to introduce you to the one and only Ian Hunter. Mr. Ian Hunter, oh my God, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Congratulations on the release of your new album, and I love that it's only part one. Defiance Part One just came out. Congratulations. Cheers, Gary. Please. Yeah, part one. There's another one coming either late this year or early next year. Yeah. 
This is an album that you can add to a long list of albums that we really wouldn't have if it weren't for COVID, right? The fact that everybody kind yeah. of had the time off. Yeah. Yeah, it was fluky. I'd, I'd done some nights at the winery in New York, and I'd met uh, this guy, Mike Cobalassi, who manages Death Leopard, and he asked him, and he wanted to manage me. And uh, then COVID hit. And uh, he said, you know, because my band, the Lamp Band, they didn't have any home studios, no way of contacting. So I started writing because, you know, there's nothing to do, COVID. And um, he said, you know, we could maybe go with people who have their own home studios, you know, because they're sitting home too. And that's how it started. A lot of people had to find different things to do during COVID. Um, They started... like gardening and doing jigsaw puzzles you called jeff beck and billy gibbons and slash and joe elliott and taylor hawkins totally different than my covid well yeah yeah great group of gardeners (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean what happened was mike and there's a guy called russ halpin who's a famous photographer and he's a mate of mine and he said you know i know some people want to play on your record it's just going to develop from there you know so when you came up with the idea and started putting the, the project together, who signed on first? Who was the first call? Uh, Slash. Slash was first, then Billy Gibbons. What we did was, uh, Andy York, who co-produced with me, Andy's the guitar player with John Malachi. Andy came over here with a little black box of XLRs and a computer, and somehow we managed to get this demo down, you know? And uh, we got it tarted up a little bit uh, uh, by a guy that we know, James Fazy, an amazing engineer. And so we managed to somehow piano, vocal, you know, demos for these people. And then like uh, everybody was going, don't change the vocals, don't change the piano. So it just became a record. And it was all, it was luck, the whole thing. No, Dean, Dean DeLeo rings up and goes like, you know, don't change the vocal because now they're working with that vocal, you know what I mean? Which is supposed to be a demo vocal, but now it's it's going to be the vocal. So in short, we uh, we just had a lot of luck and it was just, we just, I mean, I, we only had one pair of earphones between us. Andy was having to listen to me sing a cappella <laughs> with, no, with no backing whatsoever, you know, and I'm like, how was that? He's going, yeah, fine, you know, but he, all he could hear was me, nothing else. It was all very do-it-yourself, but it, we got lucky, you know, and it worked out. I talked to Slash in the height of COVID, and he was doing Legos, so it's a good thing that you called. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that was, that's a, it was pure luck. The lineup on this album is is a who's who of rock and roll, and when you look at the names, since you recorded the album, we've lost not only Jeff Beck, but also Taylor Hawkins. Do you mind talking about the experience of working with those guys and your friendship with those guys? Well, I didn't know Jeff. I'd met him a couple of times over the years, but then he started working with uh, Johnny Depp, and I knew Johnny. And Johnny said, you know, uh, Jeff and I are up for doing a couple if you want it, and that's how that came about. And with Taylor... Taylor wanted to do part one and part two. He wanted to do everything. And the guy's like an encyclopedia. I mean, unlike Joe Elliott, um, he just knows everything that's ever been done. And his enthusiasm is tremendous. I'm still got him on the phone, you know, 
going on about tracks that are like came from my solo album. He, he just knew everything. And it's 50 years old, you know. I mean, it's, I didn't know that he had other problems. Like to me, he was, he sounded fantastic. Great, great on the phone all the time, you know. Um, and Jeff, well, I worked with Mick Ronson for 17 years and Mick idolized Jeff Beck, you know. One of the greatest, if not the greatest. You bring up Johnny Depp. I had a chance to sit down with Alice Cooper, who is in the Hollywood Vampires. He was singing the praises of Johnny Depp's guitar playing abilities, saying that he trades leads with Joe Perry from Aerosmith like it's nothing. Is he really that good of a guitar player? Yeah, he's good. He got up with me a couple of times, and uh, I love, love what he did. He's not a he's uh, he listens, so he. he like on this record, he, he he creates an aura. You know, Jeff does the lead, but it, on slide, he's playing slide on it. He's playing rhythm on it. He's got this old particular little thing, and then he's singing harmonies on it. No, the guy's a he was a musician before he was an actor. You know, he was in bands in Florida. When they say when they say Johnny can't play, he can play, and he you know he's fine. Plus, he's a great guy. There's so many albums so many songs in your career and so many instruments and i'm fascinated by musical ability because my musical career began and ended with the clarinet and the marching band in high school (laughs) and i'm i'm fascinated with the concept of whether or not this is genetic or if it's learned do you come from a musical family no 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 opposite opposite nobody likes what i do (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> my grandma, maybe. My grandma, my father's side, she had a, I think she had a banjo and a, and a ukulele up in Scotland, you know. But no, none of my, my dad was a policeman, you know. I had to get out when I was 16, you know, the usual, the usual father-son thing, you know. No, no, there's no music. Actually, my grandson is a drummer with a band called uh, Chasing Mallory, and they're pretty good. Google them. So what was your first it. instrument? Who? What did you play first, and who gave it to you? Um, my father's brother gave me an acoustic guitar. It was like a bow and arrow when I was about 14, but you couldn't play it. Strings were too far off the foot. So I blood all over the place. And then uh, I wound up on bass, semi-pro bands, various semi-pro bands. And then I met a guy called Freddie Fingers Lee in a pub. And he played with Screaming Lord Such. And so uh, I got my own little semi-pro band. He joined my band. He took over. We became Freddie Fingers Lee. And I wound up on bass. We went. We started going to places like Hamburg, Kiel, Eckenflurdy, Duisburg. And these were gigs where you played seven nights a week, sometimes seven hours a night, you know. And that slowly got better and better. And I began to think, Maybe this is a, maybe I could do this, you know, professionally as opposed to uh, semi-pro and work it in the factories, you know. And it just slowly developed that way. There's a Move difference between playing instruments and being a songwriter. When did you realize yeah. that you could write songs? With Freddie Fingers Lee, he said, uh, he said, he said, uh, you know, you write, you can write a song, which meant a, bit, a lot to me at the time, you know, because up till then nobody said anything. He said, just don't sing them. Because Fred was a really good singer, you know. <laughs> he didn't want you to take his gig. Uh, well, I'm thinking I want to sing them too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And eventually, you know, I got, I got with Mark the Hoople and, uh, you know, I was, I was on piano with Mark at the side and then, um, got the manager, you know, said, I want more of a Mick Jagger, you know. So I, then I had to go to the front and then I sort of started playing guitar and singing. And it was, it's just a series of blokes. Did you ever take lessons or are you completely self-taught? Because you play a ton of instruments. No, no, I never took a lesson. I actually went into a car park once. There was a guy in a car park. Um, you know, he played guitar. So I got the first few cards, chords off of him. But you had to get in and get out because he, uh, he wanted to touch you, you know. So I'd get a couple of chords and then run for it. Oh. <laughs> I've never heard that kind of a story before when it came to how someone started in their musical career. Well, I never thought much of it at the time, but looking back, it's quite a bad story, you know. <laughs> so, do you learn from ear? Is that how you learn to play? Excuse me, I was, yeah, yeah. Just picked it up along the way, you know. It's unbelievable to me how many legends in music don't know how to read music, and they just kind of picked it up and inherently knew what they were doing. With songwriting, it's better you don't know. As soon as you know, like on piano, I write all the way from Memphis to all the way to Stone on the black notes. Because I didn't know anything about the black notes. Once I knew what was relevant, I stopped writing. It's, it's the discovery process with an instrument. Every instrument's got a song in it. You pick it up, and it's got a song in it. And, uh, yeah, when I was learning how to play piano, you know, songs came on the white notes. And then it's like, Nothing coming on the white. I'll have a look at the black notes. And I sort of learned that way. Do it yourself. Do you remember the first song that you ever wrote? Yeah, I do, actually, because I kept on playing it for about six months. <laughs> <laughs> over and over and over and over, driving people crazy. Yeah, yeah. What was it I, called? Oh, I forget. Oh, God, now you're asking me. It was a long time ago. <laughs> no, no, it's gone. I had a 30, you know, you could get old pianos in London for 30 bob, you know, like a couple of bucks. An old piano in the bedroom and uh, belting away on it every night when you came home from work, you know. And uh, eventually I signed with Francis Day and Hunter, which was a publishing company in London. And, you know, I got a couple covered. Which is, um, they were paying me 15 quid a week, which was a going rate at the time for an average job. You know, it kept me going while I was looking to, you know, looking to find a band like Mark the Hoover. It was me and Roger out of Deep Purple. We both worked for Francis Day Hunt as staff writers, you know. But they had people like Tom Jones and Engelbert Humpers, and we couldn't write that kind of stuff. And it was embarrassing, you know. I used to go in on a Friday because nobody was there to get my wages. Because... None of my songs were getting covered. None of Roger's songs were getting covered because we were doing new stuff, you know. Well, plenty of people have covered your songs now. Do you have a favorite version of one of your songs that someone else did? Is it Mary McKay? She did. It was a version of, uh, well, there's a couple of versions of uh, I Wish I Was Your Mother. There was a version by a girl. It was really good. Um, gone. It's gone. Can't remember. But, uh, yeah, I like that, you know. And Brian May did a good version of Memphis. Uh, I don't know. There's a few. I like you say. 
I get into a lot of conversations with musicians about kind of the history of rock and roll, and I call it the ping pong ball that gets lobbed across the ocean between, you know, the UK and and America and how it's constantly influencing back and forth. What influenced you growing up? What was the soundtrack to your childhood, the music you grew up wanting to be able to make yourself? Well, I was lucky because I was a bit older than everybody. And so I saw Sam Cooke and I saw Little Richard and I saw Jerry Lee. And I, you know, I saw all these people when it was really wild before it became, you know, showbiz. And uh, I was in love with anywhere south of Memphis, you know. Jerry Lee was Faraday. Little Richard was Macon. These were, you know, deep south. I fell in love with all that stuff. And it hasn't really changed. I mean, that was just, I was 18 years old. I was, it was so exciting, you know, especially Jerry Lee. He was, he was crazy. I just sat with his drummer, you know, Jimmy Van Eaton. He said he couldn't, he went on the road with him for a little while, but he couldn't take it because Jerry's off the wall, you know. <laughs> and after the Second World War, you know, England had been so quiet, so kind of dismal. that this was like, this was fantastic, you know. This is what David Bowie would do later. It brought Technicolor to the drab, black and white situation, you know. Well, some of the influences that that a lot of bands list when it comes to inspiration, they always list the Beatles, and you've got Ringo on the album. Yeah, I'd, I'd worked with Ringo uh, one of his tours, you know, 20 years ago, like 2001, something like that. And we were downstairs doing the demos, and... Uh, the speed was around 117, which is Ringo's speed. And I just thought, let's send it to him, you know. Because Ringo's like, if he likes it, he'll do it. If he doesn't like it, he won't do it, you know. Fortunately, he liked it, and it came back spot on, you know. He's still a fantastic drummer, one of the best in the world. Edgar Winter told me that he got him on his album because um, Joe Walsh and Ringo's uh, wives are sisters, and so he, he went through the wives. Said that's usually easier. <laughs> That's the way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me about collaborating with an artist like Robert Trujillo, who's in Metallica and known for, you know, the suicidal tendencies, Metallica sound. People might not associate him with Ian Hunter. Well, he actually interviewed me in San Francisco about Jocko Pastorius. Because uh, for bass players, Jocko Pastorius is the one. And back in 1975, I'd done an album called All American Alien Boys. And Jocko had been staying uh, with Bobby Columbia, who lived quite near me. Bobby Columbia was blood, sweat, and tears. And uh, he was getting fed up stopping with Bobby. So he came over and stayed with me. And we made a record down at the rec- of, uh, Electric Lady. And on that, uh, on that album, Jocko played Fretless, uh, Fretless Bass. And fast forward to now. And uh, Robert said, I, you know, I played Jocko's bass on this track. So he must have bought Jocko's bass at some point. And so he's, he's on it with Flash. And the intermingling's fantastic, considering they're doing it at two different times and two different studios. This album could have never been made if not for the technology. Now, it's, it's amazing you were able to put this whole project together in the middle of a global pandemic with no one in the room together. 
well, there's a lot to, to do with Andy York. You know, my, my co-producer, he he, he's, he he gets all that stuff. I don't, I just do the songs. You know, Andy can just the stems now, right? I mean, they, they go through the air, right? Like faders in the old days. <laughs> <laughs> and this may be the first the first album with not one but two Oscar winners, right? Because it's not just Johnny Depp. You've got Billy Bob Thornton on here too. Yeah, he was lovely. He was he was fabulous. And it's, it's great to sing with him. He's, we're very similar. You know, he's Southern Jan, but um, the harmony, the actual timbre of the voice is really good together, yeah. He's great. He, uh, he sent me photos of his studio uh, in L.A. I didn't know he had a studio, you know, but he's got this studio. And there's about eight guitars in there. They're all the same color. And I said, where'd you get all them? And he said, I was a roadie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Back in the day, I was too, so you got to start somewhere. Yeah, 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 yeah. But he's like uh, lovely, you know, he's like the guy next door. And I've loved all his stuff he's done, you know, and he's pretty amazing at what he does. So to get him on a record, it was fabulous. Is it amazing to you or a little bit of disbelief that you've had the career that you've had and that younger and younger generations of music fans are finding even your old music and that it's new all over again to them. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's great. I mean, at the time, it's like, you know, I wish they could sell more. And, and uh, uh, Joe Elliott told me when I did Alien Boy, you know, we never understood it. You know, we just didn't understand it. We were 14, we were 15, you'd been doing solid rock and roll. All of a sudden, you do, you know, David Sanborn and Pastorius and all these people. I lost a lot of... I lost a lot of fans when I left Mott and did that, the All-American Alien Boy. I lost more fans. But to me, it was, I loved doing that. You know, it was interesting. It was different. And uh, I don't conform to album, tour, album, tour, album, tour, album, tour, and they're all going to be exactly the same. You know, and they've all got our pits on them. It's too much like hard work. I got retired. I, I got out of it for twice. The last time I started, I was 57, which is not a clever thing to do, you know. But um, I can't be bothered with all that. I, I can't handle that premiership stuff at, at all. You know, it's too much like hard work and it's boring. Well, I would think that it crushes creativity as well. That's what I'm saying, basically. You know, it's great for a fortnight because it's what you always aimed at. You know, it's, it's, somebody's told me I'd be doing this and I'd be doing that. I would be going to the moon, you know, when I was a kid. But then it, it piles real quick because it becomes a business. You never really know what influence your music is going to have. And you couldn't have known back in the day with Mott how many artists and, and bands you influenced back then. No, I mean, I think that's what uh, Mott's probably got a lot to do with why all these guys, you know, did stuff on, on these two records, you know. Because Mott was, Mott was the spirit. They had the spirit. A lot of people... They play, and it's all very good and all the rest of it, but there's just something missing. The spirit, you know, and the original spirit. And like Jerry Lee had it, and like Little Richard had it, and like Gene Vincent had it, these people. When when it was just in its first, you know, when somebody said, turn the snare up on a Boogie Woogie album, you know, and turned it into rock. That was exciting. Plus, it doesn't sound like any of you guys like retirement anyway. I mean, look at the guys on this album. Billy Gibbons, 
you know, Joe Elliott, these guys are all still hard touring bands, Guns N' Roses, all of them still out on the road, still making music. Well, yeah, because that's what they're there for. Yeah. Who wants to stop, you know, if that's what you do? Plus, plumbers aren't very good when they're 15, but when they're 65, they're pretty good. (laughs) And it's one of those things that you never really know how important they are until you really need them. Yeah. I don't know how it is because I've been in this business so long. I know it from my side of the fence, you know. But um, I, it's, it's, it's most—it's nice when you read stuff, you know, and people how much it's meant in people's lives. That's that's a great payback. Could you have imagined Martha Hoople in modern day with social media and all of that stuff? It's a good thing that all of that wasn't around back in the day. We wouldn't have got a deal. <laughs> I mean, I don't. Island was stuck with us for four albums, you know, and none of them sold. You know, who would do that now? You know, it wouldn't wouldn't make any sense economically. You said you've got part two of this album coming out and that it's going to kind of have a different vibe to it. Can you talk about that? Well, the thing was, it was was COVID and it was miserable politically. So I decided I wouldn't go that route, you know, um, because people were fed up enough. Um, The next one's a a little more on the on the heavier side, I suppose, lyrically. But I deliberately tried to keep this one light, you know, up, as opposed to, oh, God, you know, COVID, politics. Next one I'm giving in a bit. And it came out on vinyl. Does it surprise you that vinyl's back the way that it is? Yeah. I mean, I never really take much, pay much attention, to be honest with you. I just, but, um, yeah, it is a surprise, isn't it? Doing more than CDs, yeah. You know. Then there was all the panic, you know, because it's like of luck has got to open all their plants again and uh, get this all moving, you know. A lot of kids seem to want to want to hear that vinyl sound. I've never, I've never bothered about that. I mean, I like them, you know. How do you listen to music, then? Is it is it all digital stuff now? You don't have a record collection at home? Not really. Um, I got... I got a black box downstairs, so I can do cassettes and I can do CDs. And then we just got this Bluetooth thing, and I don't know how it works. It takes about half an hour to get it going. Just sound good once it's going. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I got old Pioneer stuff that I, I guess I could put together and make a stereo out of. But really, I mean, if you write these things, by the time it's finished, you're not really into listening, listening to them, you know. Did I read that you live in Connecticut now? That you're a New Englander yeah, yeah. like I am? Yeah, yeah. I lived in New York for a few years, you know, on the east side, and then uh, I was in I was in a bus on a bus with my uh, youngest one, and he was he lived in about four or five, and and uh, a guy shot a guy on the pavement just outside the bus, and I just thought uh, enough. So we moved up around here, you know. I have to ask this question. I call it the geezer butler question because yeah. I never used to talk about artist pets before and then geezer started talking about all the cats and dogs he has and now he names them all after gangster rappers. So I have to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No that, fun, you know that? <laughs> that was that was my reaction when he said it, and now I have to ask everybody about their pets. Do you have cats and dogs at home? No, 
No, we don't, because we had them all our lives. Trudy and me have been together 50 years, and we had shepherds. Not, nothing but shepherds. Some of them were real shepherds, and some of them were phony shepherds. But they were all big, you know. But the last one died when we were in England touring, and I don't, I don't like... It's like having a kid go in a different country, you know. It's not much fun. Plus, we're getting on a bit, you know, so we don't want dogs crapping all over the place. And we had a cat called Stinky who hated me for 21 years. <laughs> uh, loved my wife, hated me, well tolerated me, you know. And I resented the 32 cents for the tin of cat food that I paid for every day for 21 years. <laughs> so that, that was the only cat we ever had, yeah, Stinky. I got married in the height of COVID, so I'm still kind of a newlywed. You've been married for 50 years. Do you have any marriage advice for me on how to make it last that long? Well, just tell him to do as he's told. That's what I do. (laughs) (laughs) He's a Marine. I don't think that's going to work for me. It does. It does. The harder they look, the softer they are inside. Don't worry about it. Um, Before I let you go, I have to ask you this question because I ask all songwriters that come on the show this question. It's, It's such a foreign concept to me because I've tried to write songs and I just can't. So is there, this is a songwriting craft question. Is there a song, regardless of genre or artist, that you look at as a perfect example of songwriting? A song that is so good in its craft that you wish you wrote it yourself? Oh, there's been a few, you know. I mean, the first one comes to mind is when I was a kid, you know, it was nice. The Nightingale sang in Barclay Square. Because that was uh, about a square in London, and I always imagined London to be this magic place, you know. And because uh, I lived like 300 miles from London, you know, that was an amazing song. But you know, over the years, yeah, people have like all kinds of stuff I've loved, you know. Lorraine Ellison, Saving Me Baby, that's absolutely killer. Yeah, there's a lot of songs I'd love to have written. Simpler the better, you know, like Knocking on Heaven's Door, Yesterday. Yeah, simple song. Why didn't I think of that? It seems to be an answer people give me is that the simpler the better. Yeah, yeah. They are. I mean, that's the simpler with a, with a, with a twist. That's the art of it. That's the whole art of it. One spin twice shy is really, really good because it's, it's just got that little chord, chord change that makes the difference from it being ordinary, you know. Simpler the better. Well, you named the album Defiance Part 1 as kind of, to paraphrase, I guess, an F you at people who think you shouldn't be making music at this age, that you're going to decide yeah. when your career is over, and I love that so much. Well, I think that's everybody's prerogative, right? You know, But yeah, you, you get that, because it's the obvious one, especially when you're doing national, or, you know, or a more ordinary kind of press, you know, the less musical press. You're going to get that all the time, and it is irritating. But then again, a lot of people suffer from prejudice, so I shouldn't complain. Well, it was such a pleasure to have you on the show, Ian. It was so great to hear you talk about all of the amazing artists that you have on this unbelievable album. Defiance Part 1 is available everywhere, and we'll look for Defiance Part 2 sometime this fall. Yeah, and look, it was a pleasure to be on it. Because... <laughs> are you going to take this album on the road? Is it even possible with all the people you've got on it? I don't think so. I don't think so. I've got to finish part two. It's about 60%.
and then uh, we'll see what happens, you know, probably next year. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. All right, my love. Thanks for having me. I just want to make sure to point out that Ian Hunter just called me my love. There he is, the one and only Ian Hunter. His new album, Defiance Part 1, is available everywhere. And you can check out the tracks. Just go to the show notes of this episode and click the link for the corresponding playlist. I make a playlist for every full-length episode of the podcast that's full of the music that my guest and I talk about in the interview. And the whole Defiance Part 1 album is right there. You'll also find all of Ian Hunter's links and all the Mistress Carrie links too. And if you liked what you heard, don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday. Plus, every weekday, you get the sit rep. All of your rock news, music headlines, and entertainment updates boil down to around five minutes. And you never know when we're going to release a bonus episode. Join me live every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern on my official Facebook page for my video show, Cocktails in the War Room. And you can always find me on the radio on The Mistress Carrie Show. Get the details on all that and more at mistresscarrie.com. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.